0: Welcome back to another episode of the Huxley Morton Podcast, the show where each week we speak to pharma company owners and industry leaders sharing their stories of personal and professional growth. This week on the show, I am joined by Brian Bagwandin, CEO at Recalibrate Solutions. And as always, I have my co-host, Adam Walker. Brian, Adam, welcome to the show. How are you both doing?
1: I'm very well. Thank you for having me, James and Adam. It's, uh, It's great to be here.
2: Thank you, James. I'm also very well. It's great to meet you as well, Brian.
0: <laughs> great stuff. Well, look, Brian, I've given you a very short um, intro there, but for, I guess, our audience, uh, if you can perhaps give us a quick overview of who you are and what Recalibrate Solutions is all about as, as a company.
1: Absolutely. Um, so I uh, I am somebody who started out my education with a degree in physics from indiana university um followed that with a master's degree in physics from purdue university uh and oddly enough went to work for a pharmaceutical company eli lilly Mm -hmm. uh, doing central nervous physiology and about the only two things that physics and physiology have in common is that they both start with a p
0: right Um,
1: I, i found myself a bit like a fish out of water and um uh, after a, a brief tenure at um, at Lilly for a few years, I decided to continue my education and try and combine the um, the pharmaceutical work and physiology work with my um, love of physics. And so I uh, pursued a, a doctorate in biomedical engineering with a focus on medical instrumentation.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: I've spent most of my career in that field doing medical instrument development here in the U.S. And um And I'm currently working uh, on a startup company called Recalibrate Solutions, where we have built a point of care rapid test to uh, really monitor the the health uh, of a child's uh, health and development of a child's stress response system, Mm
0: -hmm. which uh,
1: is very apropos, especially in these days of isolation and quarantine and uh, the pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. So we can get more into that as we go on. But that's a that's a brief background of my education and, and, uh, and my work history.
0: Definitely, no, I like that. And I know that when you and I were introduced, um, I had very little idea about what Recalibrate Solutions was all about. But when kind of you and I spoke and you, explained what you're doing uh to monitor the stress of children i guess there was a personal interest from, from my end because i've, I've got a, a toddler age two nearly three but sometimes he causes me a lot of stress but that may well be because he is also stressed himself so it, there's a personal interest from my side of of things um so it'll be interesting to get into a bit more detail as to how things were but I guess before we do I guess um you can perhaps give us a bit of an overview or a rewind as to how you got into this field because recalibrate as far as I'm aware is coming up for is it four four years you um folks have been going so where did, where, did, where did the idea first come from how did you get into to the industry you know bearing in mind your background that you've given us a snapshot of there
1: that's a great question, uh, James, and, and I think probably the best way to answer that is is um, uh, looking at my personal journey. I grew up um, in Indi- uh, in Indiana, which is uh, for for your listeners who are not familiar with the states, it's uh, it's in the Midwest, and. Um, sort of a farm community. And uh, that's, that's where I cut my teeth. It wasn't very entrepreneurial, if you will, as I was growing up. Mm. Um, I then moved to Seattle, which is on the West Coast uh, in the Northwest. And uh, that's where I pursued my PhD. And And uh, that gave me a lot of exposure to startup companies and the entrepreneurial world. And I, uh, I found that that I really loved it and have really worked in small startup companies. Uh, for most of my professional career. And uh, I then, I I moved for a startup company. I I found myself in Austin, Texas, Mm -hmm. and we were developing a product that was a a lab on chip for uh, identifying uh, patients who had moved from um, HIV positive to um, AIDS patients that qualified for drugs. And it was a portable device that we could take into the field because 70% of that disease was really being experienced by people on the uh, African continent and developing countries in China and and India. And so uh, it's a wonderful experience. And I found it extremely rewarding. Mm. Uh, After that company, um, I found myself again, moving uh, with my family to Denver, Colorado. And uh, in Denver, they have a very unique program. Uh, It's a serial entrepreneur who wanted to leave a legacy of trying to get the, the entrepreneurial spirit to focus on really wicked problems. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so he established this nonprofit. And and what they do, their staff curates a set of 10 problems around a given theme. And they build a dossier for, uh, for those problems uh, in written form. And then they go out and they recruit 10 individuals who are entrepreneurs who have been between opportunities um, and looking for what they want to do next. And they hand them these dossiers and they bring them together uh, with the a volunteer community for 10 days. And so it's called 10 10 10. It's 10 wicked problems, 10 entrepreneurs, 10 days. And How cool
0: is that um, Adam? I, I don't know I, I love I, that. If I'd given you the heads love up that on this part, but when oh my Brian God. first told me that, I was like holy shit, is that like some sort of like mega TV game show? Um, Brilliant. So um, and yeah, this, I guess there's funding for our fund-
1: is, it, is it a game show, uh, Brian? <laughs> it, is not a, it is not a game show. But uh, they have now changed their name to X Genesis. If you'd like to, uh, you or your listeners want to look that up. And, uh, and they curate problems around cities, uh, climate, uh, affordable housing, clean water, Uh, When I went through the program, it was around the subject of health. And let me make a distinction. It's, it's health, health, not health care. And, uh, and so they were looking at, um, again, affordable housing, and, um, and food deserts as part of health, because uh, your, your zip code sometimes determines your, um, uh, your health more than your DNA. And so, with that, I was introduced to this problem. They bring these people together. They put subject matter experts in front of, of the group um, in a public forum. So the, the public is invited as well. And then, after each problem is introduced to the, um, to the panel of entrepreneurs, they are given a, um, they're, they're asked to select a problem. And these problems are big enough that every single entrepreneur could pick the same problem. Mm -hmm. Um, they're they're wicked problems they you know type 1 diabetes type 2 diabetes uh, food deserts uh, you know affordable housing clean water so um, you pick a problem and you're given a dedicated team to brainstorm for 10 days good founder product fit good um, product market fit you use the dossier and you try and establish a market-based solution for part of that problem. Uh, you think about where the weaknesses are in that potential solution,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and you prototype that solution and take it out to half a dozen users all within that ten-day period. And then they bring the public back together, and each entrepreneur gives a um, a presentation to the public about what they did. And wow. I. Um, I like to say that I, I knew the words toxic and the words stress, but I'd never heard them put together mm-hmm. uh, until this conference in 2000, or this presentation in 2018. And it was an internationally renowned expert in this field uh, who made the presentation. Uh, just to give you an idea of the caliber of the people that were on my team, I met the um, the head of, of um, Medical innovation for Kaiser Permanente, which is one of the largest uh, uh, healthcare groups, vertically integrated healthcare groups here in the states. Mm-hmm. I met the um, the uh, senior healthcare policy advisor to the last two governors of the state of Colorado uh, was was part of that, and both of those individuals
0: are on my uh, advisory committee. Wow! So you're mixing in a, in a pretty impressive pond of people there. It was
1: really, it's really unique. This this group of people who are willing to give ten days of their of their time um, to this kind of effort. Uh, of course, you know there were also graduate students who had ten days to give. Some of these other people, they're they're actually it's it's supported by their institutions, right? So they're given the time off to go and do this as a as an effort to um, to help the community, to help the economics, to mm-hmm. really build the ecosystem. So. Uh, Toxic stress is the, just to get into it, is the overstimulation of a child's stress response system in the absence of a buffer. And most frequently that buffer comes in the form of an adult who has agency and really cares for the child. Mm -hmm. And you might think this is a really niche market, but it turns out that before the pandemic, it was estimated in America that about 12% of kids suffer from toxic stress, which is a dysregulated stress system. It's not responding the way that it should. Mm -hmm. And the long-term consequences, if you start to dysregulate the stress response system, you will disrupt brain development. And you end up with mental health disorders, you end up with anxiety disorders, you end up with uh, learning disorders, uh, a, a failure to really develop a robust executive function uh, which is the combination of memory and uh, cost-benefit analysis and um, and planning. And if you, if you just think about those three things individually and think about how much you use your skills for planning, mm-hmm. cost-benefit analysis, and memory in your everyday adult life, to, to cause those circuits to disconnect as a child, you're going to have serious problems both throughout your your early education and learning disorders, but also throughout your adult life. And um, wow, so as a consequence, uh, that's one of the consequences. The other is that um, a dysregulated stress system in childhood, if it goes unaddressed, has serious consequences to long-term health. And uh, just to throw out some numbers, um, if you if you're dysregulated as a child and not, and it's not, you know, you don't get corrected you're one and a half times more likely to have diabetes, you're two times more likely to be diagnosed with a terminal cancer as an adult, you're two times more likely to have heart disease, you're two and a half times more likely to have a stroke, and you're four times more likely to have pulmonary disease.
0: And all of this is from kind of early age toxic stress, as you say? Correct. Wow. I just, oh, it's, yeah, baffling. I just did, did, was not aware of, of this sort of thing. I'm yeah, like, what it's totally. Of, what sort of age are we talking, um, Brian? What is the, the the age demographic that's kind of... The, well, let, the, me t- uh, let me tie this to your prior question.
1: Mm. Uh, how did I get into this? Probably the most most moving piece of data that ultimately said I got to do something is <clears throat> the, um, the subject matter expert that I, I spoke about for 10-10-10 presented a graph of a a combat veteran who had returned from um, the Gulf War and had been diagnosed with PTSD. And they looked at a stress hormone panel. And in particular, they were looking at cortisol across the day of that um, PTSD patient. And beside it was the same data for an 18 month old child and you could not tell the difference between the child and the adult. Wow. So, And and actually this can happen as early as six months, but that was the data that she presented, was a a combat veteran and an 18 month old. And currently we can collect that data and that's physiological data, Mm. but we don't screen for it. We don't monitor children and their stress health and their stress uh, system development.
0: What? Why is that uh, interesting, Adam? Perhaps you could weigh in on on that as kind of you know data biometrics, etc. Is there any reason why they don't monitor that, or um, I guess rules regulations as to why that is, or is it just something that isn't um, a money spinner for <laughs> organisations out there? So hence it's overlooked.
2: If if I'm thinking, I mean, firstly, I wanted to say, Brian. I mean the the summary you've given there is, is incredibly powerful and, and similar to James, you know, I'm a parent of, of, of two kids that once were babies, uh, now they're 17 and nearly 19. And, and what's extraordinary is that as a parent, you see that stress on a daily basis from, you know, from a very early age with very, what, what seemed to be very, very large outcomes, you know, namely noise and crying and tearfulness and those types of things. But I think to your question, James, with regards to why why these things aren't being tested or analysed right now, certainly within the UK, it's about the cost and the burden to healthcare, isn't it? You know, it's, it's the fact that this is a costly process, even if it's just a simple blood test, as it stands at the moment, and maybe you'll speak to this point, Brian, you know, there aren't simple cost effective tests and ways of checking how our kids are feeling and how their toxic stress is. I can tell you categorically when my kids are in toxic stress syndrome, and I'm sure you can as well, James, with Axel, because we see it as parents and we know what good looks like and we know what the other end of it looks like. Mm. And and I, I think that's what drives, you know, many, many, many parents, many many people, you know, we all experience stress on a daily basis, don't we? Mm. But it's how you respond to that. And I think that, you know, the long-term implications that you described there, Brian, with regards to, you know, diabetes, heart disease, strokes, all these associated stress-related hormonal changes that impact um, the body are very clear, very clear in adults because we've seen it and we've seen the long-term information around that. I think we've seen far less about this in in pediatrics though, haven't we?
1: Yeah, I think that you're, you're absolutely right. I think there's another issue, um, Adam. I think everything you said was absolutely correct, but I also think that, um that sort of the first the first piece of evidence if you will that we see from um from stress-related maladies is behavioral changes
2: it's always behavior isn't it especially Mm, with with young children yeah yes and so
1: um and if you think about the stress response system it's um we refer to it as fight or flight right and um, fight flight or freeze I, right i, I often That's hear right. the third the freeze thank, yeah thank thank you for that <laughs> so 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 fight flight or freeze and you think about children in school well flight we call that truancy
2: yeah right running running away from the problem
1: mm. right and and um and fight is not an acceptable behavior within the context of uh, the education system and freeze explains a lot of these um, sort of disaffected
2: youth. It is right? effectively shutting down, shutting exactly. down the learning ability and, and everything that's associated with so, so social social engagement.
1: Right. And and taking this conversation then back to why aren't we looking at this? Why aren't we monitoring this? Mm. When you consider that every child as they're developing, we're looking at the cardiovascular system, we're looking at development for the respiratory system, we're looking at autonomic nervous system you know, with, with a little rubber hammer, uh, the auditory and, and visual systems are all evaluated, even cognitively, um, you, know, you, you go, go into the pediatrician and they want you to count or you know, recite the alphabet, et cetera, et cetera. So we're constantly monitoring systems. I don't think there's been a way at, up to this point to cost effectively do the monitoring, which is I think what Adam was was referencing, but I think yeah. also there is this um, longstanding uh, rubric where we have separated physical health from mental health, or what yes. we call behavioral health, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're if if you're having problems with behavioral health in the U.S., we call it um, Oh, well, I've forgotten the term now, but it's the idea that you have no symptoms that I can detect phys- physiologically, but we believe you have a problem, and so we're going to send you to a counselor. We're going to send you to um, somebody who focuses on mental health, and we're going to get you to talk about it. But but the, the 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 fact is that now we're starting to realize that there are real physical biological changes that happen in the child and we can monitor it and so really it is a it is it the time has come to start moving our understanding of behavioral health to something that that really is a a question of of uh, physiology and that that's what we're trying to do
0: amazing so look how did things look for for yourself and recalibrate during the early days so that you're four years in now I'm assuming that there was perhaps a lot of trying to fundraise etc but you've talked about where the idea has has come from and I I guess look that 10 10 10 series I'm I'm calling it a series because I think it should be a tv series because it sounds it sounds incredible genius Uh, it is genius isn't it um yeah well how did things look where did you go to get the idea off the ground how yeah was it just yourself in the early days had you brought in some of these advisors and people that now sit on the board how did it look um in the early days
1: yeah another great question james and and one that that i have to remind myself quite frequently as i push forward uh, as an entrepreneur but um so the, the the person who uh was the subject matter expert for 10 10 10 uh, is, a, is the head of the psychology department at the University of Denver. Mm-hmm. And she has spent her entire career looking at uh, stress system development in kids and intervention for kids who have a dysregulated stress system. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is in the psychology department, but she's also trained in biology and physiology. And she combines all of her research with physiology because she's been making those connections for 20 plus years. Mm -hmm. and uh, her name is is Dr. Sarah Watamura, and after the program was over, because I was in Denver and she was in Denver, I decided it's time to go, you know, it's time for us to meet and talk further, Mm -hmm. and so I went to her lab, and she was in the middle of a five-year longitudinal study looking at, she was following 250 families in a federally funded uh, research program where she was collecting saliva samples and looking at, stress biomarkers as she was creating she had stress models that she would create in kids right and uh, you know for a very very small child it was just as simple as as uh, the caretaker walking out of the room and standing around the corner mm. and when the child begins to cry the the parent comes back so it's nothing too traumatic right yeah um, the one that i like the most is for for a toddler they used to go to the to the fast food restaurants, and you know, with these uh, these Happy Meals, they would give out these these little toys, mm. and she would go get some of these toys, and she would put them in an acrylic box, and then she put a lock on the box, right. and present this box <laughs> to a small toddler. <laughs> it is a very effective um, stress model, you know. When <laughs> the child begin, when the child begins to cry, you know, you open the box and you give the you give the child, but you've also you've stimulated. The stress response system and so you can start mm. to take to start to take samples
0: yeah well out of interest brian I, i'm just thinking i guess we're all laughing at that particular test is what's the the, the, the most weird and wonderful one that you've come across over the years I'm, I'm just thinking i know i could certainly come up with quite a few ideas if anyone ever needed them <laughs> <laughs> well let me you know that's that's more of a question
1: uh for sarah um but you have to let me know <laughs> it's very it's very well known that um the most common stressful event for adults is public speaking public mm-hmm. speaking will totally make people crazy it, it throws them off, um, a, a, anyway. So let me, go, let me go back to this because I went into Sarah's lab, we start talking and I walked away from my first meeting with her and said, if she would agree to, f- to found a company with me, she can have whatever role she wants. And at the end of the day, she did agree. Uh, and so she is now my co-founder. But what really moved us in the direction of, you know, what's this company gonna be about is I went into her lab and I helped her. She had collected um, these samples and they were batch processed mm-hmm. in a lab in Germany, in a commercial lab. And so she would collect these saliva samples, freeze them, wait until she had enough of them and send them to Germany and wait for a month for them to test them all and send her the results back. And- That doesn't, that doesn't sound particularly real-time data to me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But it was the most cost-effective way that she could get it done. And, um, and I think that w- when I sent that batch off, she said it was the smallest batch she, had, she has sent, and it was 1,800 samples. And all of those samples had to be de-identified for privacy issues and then re-identified when they came back. And this was a five-year longitudinal study. And she never de-identified those samples until the very end when she, because it was just so much work. Right, and I said, Sarah, why don't you just build a point-of-care test and get the results in five minutes? And she said, I have no idea. That is not what I do. That is not my wheelhouse. I don't. I didn't even know that was possible. Mm. And I said, Well, I have spent the last twenty years doing that, while you've been looking at kids stress response system maybe we should get together and and we should do that together and so uh, what
0: a synergy that you spotted there and in terms of a solution yeah And, and so we developed a a um a
1: five minute saliva based cortisol test that um can be done for kids as early as you know probably six months old wow and the test strip now this is, I'm gonna show you some things that are just sort of research oriented, but the the value proposition, it, it had to be fast. It had to be really inexpensive because you're gonna be throwing it away. It's a monitoring tool. It's not a once and done, oh, I'm gonna give you a diagnostic. Mm. Uh, and, it, and it also had to be child friendly. You didn't wanna do something where you're creating stress to get the sample, like sticking a needle in somebody's you know, arm or, or <laughs> finger, right? Mm-hmm. Um it, it corrupts your results. So we built this paper test that um, you know you just you spit on it and it looks like um, a
2: pH strip.
1: It is like a pH strip. it's uh, it's using the same technology that's used for the pregnancy test. And so you put a liquid sample on it and uh, and it uh, unfortunately or fortunately, you don't get partially pregnant. Right. But, but you can be, but we do need possibly on the stress side, we need yeah. quantitative results, right? It's not a yes or no. Yeah. Um, the way it is with pregnancy. And so this is something that we want to try and build as a future follow on where the collector, the this paddle, Goes in between the cheek and the gum, collects the sample, and it's automatically transferred to the strip that's in the test strip. The paper test strip actually is inside that plastic cartridge. Mm-hmm. That plastic cartridge then gets put into um, a little handheld box that is about the size of a uh, TV remote, and uh, and that data is then um, sent to the cloud, or is sent to the um, the health record, the electronic health record um, in the in the physician's
2: office for. Um, so it, it reads you, a it reads a value. Is that right, Brian? It reads out a value.
1: Correct. It reads a value. And it also, you know, in our analysis, we can tell you what are norm, normal values. And so you can get um, you can get normally you can get normal values, then you can exceed the normal values uh, with a high boundary, but also you can um, you can exceed, you can you can have abnormal values that are really low. So the normal range is not zero to some threshold, it's actually bounded on both sides. And and that's important because because the normal low values, the the hypothesis is that you start stressing the system and it begins to produce cortisol and it begins to produce all of the cofactors that go with that um, when the system is turned on. But if it's turned on for too long, and you continue to see um, overstimulation, the system will get fatigued, mm-hmm. and it will begin to shut down. Um, and and uh, from a behavioral standpoint, I like to describe the um, the what we call the the ADD or the ADHD teenager who is mm-hmm. always on constant high alert, can't mm-hmm. concentrate, looking over their shoulder, really wound up tight. Well, that's that that can also that can be symptoms of somebody who's dysregulated and their system is being stimulated so often that they are in ang- anxiety and fear all the time. Mm-hmm. And then if they are too if the system gets too fatigued and it begins to shut down, you start to see the disaffected youth that doesn't care about anything, that can't be motivated by discipline or poor grades or any kind of penalty. And so those are kind of the behavioral. Mirrors to what may be going on inside um, uh, the endocrine system that that is responsible for for
2: helping us with uh, stress response. Mm-hmm. Brian, Brian, as you're saying that, it's reminding me, and I'm i I'm, I'm reminded of you know individual baselines. I'm I'm thinking about lab values. So so for example, with a you know a, a cuff a blood pressure reader, you take it against an individual's baseline. Right. But, by what you're describing, what I'm hearing is there is no baseline. There's a range. There's an upper and a lower range, and that's what you're measuring everyone against, not against their own baseline. Have I understood that correctly. It, it is.
1: It's a little bit of both, Adam, um, and and I think that's a that's a great distinction to make. We initially know that there are some there are some average uh, values depending on your age, right? Because it's a developing child. Yeah. Um um, there's, a, there's a high and a low that we can work with. But we're, we're actually hoping, and this is a bit of more of a long-term vision for the company, that as we begin to aggregate that data, we can actually establish a personalized baseline for that individual, right? And we can also start to understand where the fluctuations come from. I mean, there is nothing wrong with going out of bounds. Um, that's the way the system is designed to work if I'm out for a hike in the woods and um, a mountain lion or a bear or some, some threatening event occurs, <laughs> you know, I wanna see a spike in my, you know, in my cortisol levels. Um, but after the threat has disappeared, you want those levels to come down back to normal, right? Mm-hmm. And there are even situations where you can get uh, protracted uh, abnormal values. If I'm a small child and um, and I'm very close to my grandmother, and my grandmother passes away, um, you know, I might find suppressed levels of cortisol in that child, and it may go on for eight weeks. You know, um, however, if it goes on much longer than that, then intervention may be necessary to um, to to help. Build resilience within the child to help the recovery process, and so, and those kinds of um, those kinds of interventions are much less costly and time-consuming than if you wait until the child gets to a point where, you know, they have no interest in school, they're dropping out, they're becoming addicted, they're self-medicating. Yeah, fill fill in the blank, right? They have mm. they have aberrant uh, behavioral uh, um, responses, and if we're waiting for that to happen, it becomes a much more costly problem.
2: Yeah, it's too late then, as a parent, as as a caregiver, it's too late, isn't it?
0: I like
1: to think it's oh, never it's too late.
2: Too late. <laughs> but but if you've got the empirical data that supports the early discovery. It's mm. too late. That's what I'm that's where I'm coming. Yeah. From. Yes. You know, for, why, for why let it run for extent. 10, 12 years when you can actually act upon it? Sorry, James. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, no, no. no you're pretty much making the point that I was making. There. It's about yeah finding it early and identifying it before it becomes that problem where people then almost use the, the label of they've always been like that, you know, and that's right. we don't want to get to that point. So um, look, it's all very interesting. Um stuff Brian and I guess yeah I guess I'll probably be even more alert to to watching my own son friend (laughs) these days than I'd have but you'll you'll have me stressed just looking at other people's stress um but how has it gone since you you teamed up with um Sarah and kind of you know spotted that synergy you know we're, we're four years in uh to recalibrate now how how do things look now how have you you grown are you back to offices yet what you know sort of impacts have the you know coronavirus had on you as a business what 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 does what do things look like if you can give us a thank a you for asking I
1: james I, you know it's it's not it it was hard it was really hard in um uh, so so we did an initial pre-seed uh funding round um and decided that the best use so, so the best use of our funds was really to de-risk the technology. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, we knew that this could be done, uh, as was the case with Sarah and her research and all the samples that she'd been sending for, you know, for decades, uh, and looking at these things and making the correlations. Um, the research is there. The cost had to come down. The time had to come down the ease of use had to come down. With any medical device, there there are some things that, uh, and I I speak primarily from a a, a US perspective because we're we're not looking at at, um, a socialized system the way that the UK or Canada or Europe looks at. But um, for for, for our system, you you have to make sure that it provides uh, clinical validity, which Mm -hmm. usually comes through the regulatory process. It's a valid result. does it have clinical utility, which suggests that, you know, if a physician is given this information, is there something useful about the way that they uh, proceed forward? So Mm -hmm. any medical device or any test or procedure has to provide clinical utility. And the third thing is the health economics around it, right? I mean, does it make sense to, um, uh, to end world hunger well, you would say, yes, but if I told you that it was going to cost, um, you know, three times the overall GDP of every country on the planet, then maybe it's, you know, it's, it's not a great solution and we should look for a different one. So mm-hmm. the health economics fit into this, um, both from the payer standpoint, as well as from the provider standpoint. And that really is, is unique to the U S because they're, you know, they're, they're separate. Right. And so, um, so we recognized that we had to, f- fill those um, those situations and the first thing we had to do was find a solution that was fast inexpensive um, and non-traumatic and easy to use for for the provider and do then we had that to make was the sure biggest
0: that... challenge Brian or were there others it seems that like there's there was a few hurdles it was it's not plain sailing by any stretch of the imagination is it so was that perhaps the main challenge that you faced or that you wanted to overcome well, that, those were the ones that we said if we build a
1: company around this, what's the value proposition? You know, mm-hmm. what distinguishes us and what's going to make us different? And 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 we saw that as the biggest. Like, if we didn't have if we didn't have a fast solution, then you we could continue sending samples to the lab in Germany or to the central lab, you know, at the hospital. Mm. Um, you know, if we if it was going to cost fifty bucks instead of you know, five or two, then probably Mm. you're not going to be able to monitor that every time that, you know, a child comes in to see the pediatrician, it's just not, nobody's going to pay for that. Mm. And, uh, and then if you, if you can't point to data that says there is utility in, in having this information for the physician and, and verifying that that's necessary. I mean, that's, that's really what we honed in on and we decided that we also want to get there fast. Right? I mean, this has been going on for too long without a, without a solution. So mm-hmm. we started looking at existing technologies and said, what can we use that already exists that we could turn around and exploit that technology for this particular application and build a um, sufficient barriers to entry for competition, but also provide this, uh, this solution to the user. And so ultimately we came up with the, the saliva-based paper test strip that can be quantitative um, and throw it in the trash. So um, about the end of 2019, is that right? We we had demonstrated that we could do quantitative measurements with raw saliva across all the the required concentrations that were necessary uh, to to have this make sense and, and have utility. And uh, and so we decided it was time to start raising some real money and and really go into uh, full full bore product development for regulatory submission, and um, and about two months later, the entire country shut down. Wow. <laughs> so we had some we had some real challenges. Um, you know, I had two or three uh, potential investors who were very very interested, and I got back to them, and they said, "I'm sorry, we're not making any new." Uh, equity investments, we have to save what we have uh, for our existing portfolio, and we don't know what what our companies are going to look like, and so, um, uh, you know, great talking to you, but I'm sorry, we're we're in an unusual situation, Mm -hmm. and it went on what felt like forever, right? This wasn't two months and things will turn around. This wasn't, you know, a plunge in the stock market or, you know, a a, a savings and loan crisis like we, we saw in 2008, this was protracted. Um, and, uh, you know, if if there was a silver lining, uh, and this is going to s- sound terrible, but it, it, it helped people realize that you can't, the, the, the need for testing, right? Um, it, it really helped people understand that you can't do anything for people if you haven't identified who needs the help.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: COVID really put a fine point on that for a lot of people. And the second thing was, um, and th- this is a bit tragic, but the estimates were 12 to 15% of kids in America are suffering from uh, a dysregulated stress system. After the pandemic, two years later, it's they think that number has doubled. So one in three children are probably suffering with some kind of, and, and it's probably starting to show itself in their mental health, right? Um, and and there's a, so, so, so those are, those are some of the sort of broad 30,000 foot view of, you know, what the pandemic, how the a pandemic affected us. Hmm. Um, the, from a tactical standpoint, one of the things that we had to decide to do, we, uh, we had hired uh the company that developed the saliva-based HIV test um, and they were located in California, we hired that group to actually help us develop this test and, um, and we, we probably would have moved forward with them, but because um, of our, our uh, capital needs and, and lack of ability to raise money, we pulled all that back. So we did a, a full transfer of protocols and, um, and bill of materials, et cetera, et cetera, pulled it all back. And um, I think I told you that, that uh, my, uh, my co-founder is the uh, a professor at the um, University of Denver. Mm-hmm. We negotiated a facilities use agreement um, with the university and we uh, recruited one of their chemists out uh, of the chemistry department, an assay development chemist, um, and pulled all that inside the university. Um, received a small grant for um, for some student labor, and and really just sort of moved the whole thing internally. And we've been sitting for probably the last year and a half um, internally at, uh and, and so we move much slower in our development effort. Um, I would have hoped that after this, this period of time, we would have been ready uh, with data to submit to for, for our regulatory clearance. Mm. Um, we're, we've now uh, recently within the last um, few months reopened our fundraising effort. And so we're now in a, in a seed round uh, looking for about a million and a half uh, U.S. dollars. And, and we think that that money can take us to the point where we can have several deployable uh, systems that we can put out there. We can start collecting data that we would then be able to use for uh, our regulatory submission. But mm. um, currently, it, needless to say, going and asking for saliva samples during the pandemic was not... Um, was, was, was not really the thing to do. And, uh, and, uh, with a respiratory disease that, uh, uh with viruses probably floating around in, in saliva. Mm-hmm. And so we, um, one of the things that we did, it was, uh, created an artificial saliva. And, and that's how we moved our development efforts forward is, um, is using a, a chemical simulation of saliva and then spiking it with various, um, with various, uh, Antibodies and and um, moieties that we thought would would replicate what was in saliva and mm-hmm. and uh, and then spiking it also with cortisol and and uh, sort of refining our test that way. But we now have to go back out and verify that. You know, Get
0: back to yeah, right, cool. Well, look, I, I guess I know from, from my side of things, I I'd certainly be interested to know kind of what was going through your head at the, the moment that the investors pulled out. But it uh, it seemed as though Adam also was. Itching to jump in with a bit of a question there, Adam. If that is still you know fresh, me too well, you fresh, know me far too fresh, well fresh in your mind, things. I could see, I could see the the wheels in in your brain there. So what? Um, well, you I was jump just I,
2: as you were talking and describing that, Brian. It, it was just dawning on me some of the challenges that you were experiencing, but also uh, the proof of concept really is is key, isn't it? It's proving it, and and you've it sounds like you've done a test bed in now in an academic institution that will then be spun out onto a onto a greater scale. I mean, the nuts and bolts of it that you've described are also incredibly interesting, you know, from someone who's fascinated by data in and around a clinical setting, it's fascinating to me. But also, I, I, I almost had a kind of dragon's den moment where I was thinking, have they got the patent? Um, have they registered it? What about the medical device regulations? All of these things were pinging around in my head and I was making some notes as I was thinking, and, and of course, I would imagine these are paramount in your in in you, your thoughts at that time, and and then of course, COVID comes along and pulls the plug from underneath, uh, pulls the rug from underneath you, I should say.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, and so we've had to be,
2: um, you know, I want to just very briefly
1: address this issue of of uh, patent protection. Um, yeah. we've we've had to be uh, pretty clever these days. Uh, there was a, there was a um, in the U.S. There was a, a a case of someone who was trying to patent a, a, a protein and uh, it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And uh, I think it was a protein. It might've been genetic material. I have to go back and, and refresh my memory. Uh, this was a few years back. And what the Supreme Court determined was that any naturally occurring biological function in the body cannot be patented. Yeah. And uh, this this created some real, stress and heartache uh, for people whose careers were built around diagnostics, because what you're saying is I can no longer protect a, if I make a discovery of a naturally occurring um, molecule that happens every time a person gets even close to a heart attack, and I can identify that, I can't protect it because it's naturally occurring. And so how then do you go out and build intellectual property around what you've got if it's not mm-hmm. that. And so we have um, we've really built a strategy around how we would put together a patent portfolio because, as I said, we went after some technology that's well-established and understood so that we could move it through the regulatory process a lot faster so that people would uh, physicians would be willing to adopt it without questioning you know, what's going on here and, and, uh, and having to prove the technology, if you will. Mm. And uh, we have a pretty robust strategy that includes, um, like for instance, all of our software, none of it will be patented. Those will all be trade secret. And the reason is that we don't really want to put our, our software code, we don't want to write it down and put it in the public domain so somebody can look at it and say, how can we how could we write code to get around that? So we're not doing exactly the same thing, but if getting to the same result.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so those are the kinds of things that uh, we've spent some time thinking about as it relates to you know during the time of the pandemic is how do we build those barriers to entry, and uh, and now we think we've got uh, the system that we could put together and say this system when it works in concert this way will then be something that is novel and non-obvious to uh which are the two criteria for for filing a patent so Mm. uh, part of part of the use of proceeds for the seed round will be executing uh on on some of those things in our in our patent strategy
0: amazing It, it sounds like you've been quite diligent with the whole process there brian and very i guess yeah just kind of we've got a plan we're going to stick to it we're going to you know there is going to be some adaption there but how did you deal with all of this personally through that time because you know we spoke earlier about you know flight uh, fight flight or freeze and it seems that you know you've managed to come through and you've, you've you know weathered the storm haven't you so what was going through your mind and where were you thinking in terms of those options as that was all i, I guess you were going through it because again You can look back at it now and be like, this is what we've done. And this is where the, you know, connect the dots. But what was, what was your mindset at the time?
1: Oh, James, I have, you know, during that period, people would, would, I would have conversations with them and I would say, they would say, how are you doing, Brian? And I would say, pick an emotion. I'm probably going through it right now. I mean, there's, (laughs) it just depends on what I want to focus on. I mean, it has been it really has been a, a journey. And, um, uh, you know, the self-talk has been extremely important, uh, reminding myself, and probably at the end of the day, James, uh, and, and, a, and a lot of entrepreneurs will tell you this, is you can never forget why you're doing what you're doing. And I have had dark moments throughout this um this journey and times when I have asked myself, "What am I doing? Why am I doing this?" and I have to remind myself, "This is for the kids. This is for my kids' adult life, right?" I mean, what will the world look like if we could, in fact, uh, put a serious, uh, uh, you know, dent or decrease? rates of diabetes and cancer and heart disease and stroke and pulmonary disease and depression, mm. if we could reduce the rates of, of stroke and addiction, if we could uh, you know, really reduce the number of, of people who are dropping out of school and increase productivity, if we could uh, give people that kind of hope because they never their brains weren't scrambled as as children because the normal course of the way we're treating them is improving their their quality of life what will what will that look like for um for generations to come it's you know that's what's so important that's why we have to keep
0: soldiering on if you will um it's clear that you've got got that that yeah. that 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 vision, and you've got your why, which is what what we're often looking for when Adam and I yeah have people on the show. We you know it's very clear of why you're doing this and where the, the passion comes from. Um, so what's what's next? You know, in terms of um, you know, the next six months for for the remainder of, of 2022 as we sort of work our way through it. I can't believe that we're already where we are. Um, you know, what's what's next in store for yourself and, and recalibrate. So uh, you know,
1: our hope is uh, that that in the next uh, couple of months we'll be able to close this round. Um, we will then be hiring, and that's gonna that's gonna present another challenge. I mean, most of my experience in doing medical device development has been where you gather everyone into the same. You know, the same facility. Um, it's a unique and, uh, niche in which to work uh, when you start looking for designers and engineers that have good design experience and, and also understand how to operate in the regulatory environment that we're operating in. Um, and I have viewed that as, as there's an opportunity, because if we can do this remotely, I no longer have to depend on people with the qualifications I need in the Denver area or try to move them to the Denver area. I now have a whole new uh, and very large pool of talent that I can call on. It's just really being um, deliberate, intentional, strategic, and smart about the way that we conduct that that development effort and and making sure that we're bringing uh, bringing those those groups together uh, at the right time and, and in the right way. Um, but I'm so I'm pretty excited about that when this round gets, gets finished and we start uh, doing some serious hiring and we start putting together those teams of, of experts. And um, hopefully uh, in 2022, we'll see uh, a better accommodation of, um, of this uh, COVID virus and, and the way that we handle it. And we'll be able to go out and start collecting uh, raw saliva samples again. And we'll be able to uh, start putting that data in place. Uh, so that we can make our regulatory filing and, and hope that, uh, you know, sometime in 2023, we're making that filing and in 2023, getting our clearance so that we can sell. So uh, it's a it's a pretty
0: exciting time.
1: Um, we just have to. It sounds like through. it. And-
0: Look, I'm, I'm, I have to say that for anyone who's gearing up for hiring at the moment, it is such an opportunity the way the world has gone re- remote. I guess for us as a recruitment business, it's been incredible for any kind of startup that are looking for that growth period. Again, like you said, the opportunity is there. So it'll be interesting to see how that um, goes, Brian. But look, before we let you jump off uh, the show, we always like to close uh, with a little bit of a, a quick fire questions round, just to point out a little bit more about, Brian the man himself and and your thoughts and views uh, outside of the business as much as uh, inside of it so I'll kick us off with the first question and that is um, I guess that the focus here is about improving uh, children's lives reducing stress etc but what is the one piece of advice that you would perhaps give to your younger self given the chance I think
1: um, I think I didn't fully understand the the importance of networking when I was younger,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, and you know you you meet these young people that are your peers, and we really have no idea where people are going to land and end up, and uh, it's it's really just the power of relationships because um, you know <laughs> there there is an entrepreneur an entrepreneur's day. In the U.S., and I, I remember reading this post that said, you know, when you look on LinkedIn, when you look on Facebook, when you when you listen to entrepreneurs, what you hear is how they landed this money, this investment, uh, this milestone, this award, and what you don't know is that most days they get up and they talk themselves into continuing to do what they're doing, um, and and that is what you miss you know, from a day-to-day basis. And what we really don't focus enough on is um, it's not those individuals. It's really the community. It's really the, you know, it's the relationships. It's the, and I don't want to say it's, it's who you know, but it, it really is being able to surround yourself with people who will support you. And, and some of those people will in fact connect you to people that you need to, you, need, you know, will help you succeed. And I wish I would have I, I understood that earlier as a as an individual
0: perfect no i think that's um very good i mean that's how adam i and i have met that's how we have met so um that solid advice
2: it's it's great advice because exactly to your point james you know those that put themselves out there with the right intent and with the the best of you know the best approach ultimately do connect with like-minded selves we said it all the time james don't we um so so moving on to our second question um what is the number one book or resource that you'd recommend to our audience? We always love to hear what people are reading. It looks like you've got quite a lot of books on your bookcase. And I'm looking at calculus, which is uh, not (laughs) necessarily a a positive positive um... memory of mine, but (laughs) I hope you're not reading calculus on on your bedside table. No, I, you know,
1: I am not going to recommend what I'm reading. I've been doing a lot of uh, reading uh, and I'll just give you the general subject is, is I've been looking at, um, race relationships in America and, and racial equality uh, and equity in America. And I don't know that I would recommend that to your audience. There is one book that I would recommend that I think is an outstanding read, which is um, um, it's called, What Happened to You? And it relates to this subject of um, toxic stress. And, and it addresses in, in a very readable way um, the 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 topic and and in the past that the premise of the book is that in the past um, people have said what is your problem when they Uh, have seen them behaving in a certain way mm -hmm. and uh, and it's really an effort to try and change the rubric and say maybe i should be asking what happened to you and um, uh, it was co-authored yeah
0: it was what's that
1: I said interesting.
0: Yeah, very good kind of spin on, on exactly that situation. I think everyone can relate to that.
1: Yeah. And there's a there's a mental health counselor who has some fascinating stories about the way kids respond to stress um, and some of the visceral ways that they respond. And, and really helps understand uh, the role of regulation versus rationalization in helping kids who are dysregulated. Mm-hmm. And I may have had a brief conversation with James about this, but um, they found that uh, putting people in counseling, when, when we're asking the question, what's wrong with you? Um, w- we often try to rationalize how they should behave. So we say, you should act like this. What's normal. Right. And we, we try to tell them um, and, and rationalize with them with whatever they're going through. And it turns out that Um, and and most of us know this, if you're very anxious about something and you're scared about something and somebody comes to you and says, it's all going to be all right, it is about as helpful as a rock. I mean, it it does nothing for me. Um, I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. Don't worry, it's going to be all right. Oh, really? So, and how am I going to pay my bills? Uh, You know, whatever the problem is, right? I mean, um, it does not help, but, and it's because I can't hear it. I can't think about it rationally, but it turns out that if we can regulate people who are in that state and regulation comes through rhythm, it comes through music, it comes through exercise, it comes through being in nature, it comes through yoga, meditation, breathing. There's so many things uh, to regulate children before you start to rationalize with them. And that book uh, you know, is a, is a real gem and it's really helped me actually in my parenting
2: it's that stimulation piece that you talk about you know with technology with with external media sources it's all those kind of negative influences but also i think you made the point around you know that interview bias effectively instilling your bias on the question rather than opening up with an open question rather than driving the answer that right, you want right. to get i think it's a, it's a tremendous a tre- tremendous uh, it, it's a tremendous answer, Brian. Great, great, great Thank book. Thank you so great much. Book, highly recommend it. Thank you that. so much.
0: I like the sound of it. And look, you 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 talk, spoke a moment ago, Brian, about um, the next steps, and there's going to be hiring involved, etc. That um, we've all got our own preference of how we like to build our teams. But look, what are the what are the top three qualities that you value most when um, looking to build your own? Oh, great
1: question, uh, James. Uh, you know. I've I've been in uh, startups most of my career, um, and I've worked with a number of dysfunctional teams. Um, and and <laughs> part of the excitement of this particular opportunity, it was not at the forefront, but it is absolutely one of the, you know, top five uh, things that was exciting to me about this was being able to build my own team.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And
1: I would say, uh, you know, in building that culture, um, one of the things I want. From every person that's part of our team is I want, I want people who are grateful. I want people who can see and be grateful for the whole wide range of not what have you done for me lately, but really gets the big picture and is, is grateful. Um, integrity and honesty, I sort of put those two together. I think that's extremely, extremely important. And then um, the third quality, I think, is... Uh, what I will, sometimes I refer to it as transparency. Um, another way to, to, that I think about that is, um, I want people to um, not be afraid to fail. Um, I think we learn so much from our failures. Mm-hmm. And um, we used to celebrate failures when I worked in a product development company, because it, you know, as Thomas Jefferson, or no, Thomas Edison said, you know, I now have a thousand different ways that I know how not to build the light bulb. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, when you're involved in trying to create and be innovative, it's really important that you, that you function in an environment where it's safe to try something and fail and, and, and learn from that failure and, and not be afraid to sort of look at it and say, okay, what did I get from that? So those three things. It sparks
0: ideas, doesn't it? It sparks ideas. If people aren't afraid to speak up, then that's when you're going to get ideas. If everyone's, you know, hiding in, in the corner or you know, in a shell, you're never going to get any anything value other than what you bring to the table yourself. So what's the point in having that sort of culture? So, no, hundred percent on board with you there, uh, Brian. And I'll throw over to to Adam. What is your favorite thing outside of work when you're uh, not thinking about stresses and young
2: children? <laughs>
1: Well, you know, I live in this great place. I'm, I'm right on the front range of the Rocky Mountains. And so skiing and hiking um, and I'm a sailor uh, and, and uh, you know, some people may think I'm crazy, but I actually brought my little sailboat from when I lived on the West Coast. And it now is sitting on a lake, an alpine lake uh, at about 9000 feet. And I, I wow. sail around this lake, you know, looking at these gorgeous snow-capped mountains uh, in the summertime. So those, those are three recreational activities. And of course I enjoy um, just general reading and exercising and walking my dog. So I'm just a normal person.
0: That's fabulous. Like hear, Thank you for that. I'd like to hear it. And look, to close the show then, uh, Brian, um, I guess, look, what is your number one golden rule for, for life and business? We've spoke a lot about the, the business side of things. We've just heard some of your personal uh, interests. Um, what's what's the golden rule for, for both Yeah, life and business?
1: Um, treat everyone with respect and dignity. You probably could have predicted that based on some of my other answers, but you know, from, from small children to aged adults, to successful business people, to people who are struggling to make a go of it, to, um, to common laborers, to um, highly educated people, um, we're we're all human beings, and everyone needs to be treated with dignity and respect. And um, and it will carry you farther than um, than what most people put
0: their trust in. Definitely agree. So look, Brian, with that in mind, look, where can our audience reach out to you? Um, LinkedIn, your website, email. What's the best way for yeah, either investors, people to, interested to, to hear more. What's the best place to get you?
1: And I, th- I think. Probably um, the best place to get me directly is through LinkedIn, and uh, it's a bit of an odd spelling, but I think that if your uh, audience uh, has access to the show notes, um, you can you can put my LinkedIn profile up or just look me up. There's only one of me uh, out we there. We can hook
0: you up with that, Brian. Yes, I, I did have to ask you how to pronounce your name, even though it is now just Brian. But yes, I, I think when our audience see it, they will perhaps know what exactly what I'm talking about here, but yeah, and and, and we do have a website out
1: there and there's, there's lots of good information out there. Um, And uh, we're always entertaining uh, conversations with potential investors as well. So um, anything, and I'm, I'm pretty good about answering uh,
0: outreach from LinkedIn. That's, that's probably the best way to get me directly. And fantastic stuff. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.